nights before we start learning, it takes us to a different level. Okay, l'chaim to everybody for our learning Torah and for growing in our Torah and for not being satisfied with our learnings and keep on growing and growing. L'chaim to everybody. Baruch atah adinai aleheinu melech ha'elam sh'akol niya bidvaro. Yaakov, are you going to have a l'chaim with us? Jacob, no? Who's Jacob? There he is. Jacob. Okay. Okay, so let's, uh, for today, <coughs> what I would like to do today is to touch upon a subject that, first of all, as you know, we, on the Zoom, we just do the mute, just uh, makes it easier. We don't have to have all side uh, noises around, but you can unmute yourself if you... Uh, if you would like to. So I want to touch upon a subject today that is a subject that is connected to last week and this week's Parsha. And it's also going to be repeated again in two weeks from now, the last two Parshas of this book of Shemos. The second book of the Torah of Exodus has four Parshas that are Two, uh, two are the same, and the other two are repeating the first two. So Teruma and Tetzava are two portions where God tells Moses that I want you to organize with the Jewish people and build me a palace, build me a temple. And when we were in the desert, that's when we got the instructions. In the first of the two is the instructions of what God wants in the temple. He wants to have an ark, which is going to have the tablets in it. It's going to have a little jug of manna, so we could always remember how we, uh, who we could rely on when we think our, you know, our sustenance is not coming, and it comes from Hashem. And the next, another prop is the um, the bread table that we have a special bread table where they bake special breads and offerings of challah. And then we have the walls that went around the temple, this courtyard area. And then we have an altar. An altar is the place, there were two altars. In last week's portion, we read about the first altar, which is an altar called the copper altar, which we're going to talk more about in detail shortly, called the copper altar. This was also known as, it has a few names. The, an altar means a mizbeach. Okay, for today's class, by the way, if you have access to a pen and paper, it would definitely come in, come handy. So the first, the name of an altar in Hebrew is called Mizbeach. Okay, I don't know how you spell it in English, but in Hebrew it's Memzayin Beis Ches. Now, an altar. Now, we also call the altar called the Mizbeach Hanechoshes. It was the altar of copper because it was plated with a copper copper metal all around this altar. This another name for this altar is called the Mizbeach Hachitzon, meaning the outer altar, meaning there were two parts areas of the temple. There was the inner chambers called the Holy of Holies, and there was only the ark, but outside 
and in the, that Holy of Holies, right outside the Ark, was another altar called the Inner Altar, the Mizbeach HaPnimi, the Inner Altar, which is, that altar is called also as the Mizbeach HaZahav, the Golden Altar, which is mentioned in this week's Parsha. Now, so there's two altars. The altar that was the outer altar and the inner altar. The outer altar was meant to bring animal sacrifices. Actually, the most common offering to God or an offering for atonement or an offering for a gift offering, whatever kind of offerings you want, the most common offering was with animals, all different kinds of animals and different rules in the animals and the ages of the animals and the condition of the animals. They were brought, all the animals were brought on the outer altar. It was much bigger, very large and very high and it had a ramp that would take you up there. Call, again, this is the copper altar or, or the outer altar. There is an inner altar that's mentioned in the second of the two portions that talks about the building of the temple. And it's in today's parsha. Today's parsha mostly speaks about the garments that the high priest would wear. His breastplate, the robe, the pants, his, his sash, his hat, all the garments that a, a, a regular Kohen would wear and more garments that a high priest would wear. At the end of today's parsha, it speaks about the second altar called the inner altar, the Mizbeach means altar. So Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden altar, or you could call it the Mizbeach HaPnimi, the inner altar. Now, why was the inner altar called the golden altar? Because it was plated with gold. Now, there's a couple important introductory uh, ideas that we really need to try our best to comprehend. Don't get lost with this introduction, but knowing this introduction will help us all to enjoy the rest of today's class. And it's important to notice to know this whole introductory thing. The reason why it could get a little bit confusing, you can get a little bit lost, is because we live in a time in a generation for the last almost 2,000 years that unfortunately we don't have a temple in Israel. Now, when we don't have a temple, so we don't have the offerings to bring. When you don't have the offerings to bring, you're not so conscious about purity and impurity because most of the laws of whether you're considered to be spiritually holy and pure was relevant when you had the, time, when you had the temple. It made a lot of differences. Foods, that came into the temple became holy, and only if you were holy, you were allowed to eat it. So the laws in the time of the temple of impurity and purity was literally a way of life. It, we could maybe think of it today, whether, you know, a person, today people think, I'm, 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 this is a little bit of a negative thing, but it, the idea of consciousness is today people think of it, oh, this person, you have a virus or you don't have the virus. Are you contagious or not? In the laws of purity, in a way, it was that kind of level of consciousness. So, there are many rules in relating to purity and impurity. And I'm going to touch upon some of them that are relevant to our subject here. If a person became impure by coming in contact with something that was impure, right, or... You, you, let's, let's say a person um, touched a corpse. You were involved in the burial. 
So that would make you impure. And there's a number of other things that can make a person impure. But also, besides people becoming impure, things could become impure. So a cup could become impure. Certain items could become pure. The Torah teaches us that only something that has the, the title of a keli, of a vessel, could become impure. That means if I have a, a piece of metal, the metal could only become impure if this piece of metal is a vessel. What does it mean it's a vessel? A vessel means that it has to be able to hold something in it. So if you take a, she a sheet of metal, a flat sheet of metal, flat sheet of metal cannot become impure because it doesn't have the law of the terminology that the Torah uses to become impure, which is kli, a vessel. So a flat piece of metal cannot become impure. If you take this flat piece of metal and you shape it, bring up the, bring up the sides on both sides, make it into a bowl, now it's something that could be susceptible to become impure. And it's the same thing with any, almost any item that you have, a piece of leather, many things. If it's a, some kind of way, it's a vessel in any way, shape or form. If it's a kind of vessel, it could become impure. If it's a flat thing, not a vessel, it cannot become impure. That's one rule to remember in purity and in impurity. Another thing is that the metal, let's use the example of metal because we're going to appreciate it soon when we talk about the altars. So another way is that if metal is, if you have a piece of metal that's, that's like considered to be the non-essential item, then the non-essential item is considered to be as if it's non-essential and it's a nothing. So take, for example, if you take a, a, um, a glass bowl and I coat it with gold, I plate it with a gold, so the gold metal now is making it plated, but what's the purpose of the glass bowl? It's for the, to have the bowl. The plate, the plating of it is secondary to the bowl. So since it's secondary, it doesn't count as a real substance and the metal cannot become impure. Now, when you understand a little bit this introduction, keep this in mind and put it in a compartment in your mind on the side. When it comes to the altars of the temple, how did we build these altars? We said we called this the exterior altar, the, the, the outer altar. We called it the copper altar, and the inner one was called the, the golden one. Again, we mentioned that the outer altar was used for animal sacrifices, and the inner altar was used for what? It was used for kitores. Kitores means incense, things that give off a special odor, a special smell. There were 11 kinds of incense that were used in the temple at different services and different reasons. The Torah tells us when to use what. Sometimes it had to be mixtures and it gave off certain smells. That was used on the inner altar. The inner altar was only a couple feet tall and it was smaller and it was plated with gold. So now, the outer altar, 
is plated with copper and the inner one with gold. What was behind or the inside of this, let's use, let's talk about the, the copper one, but really it's the same for both. The, the altar that had the copper, so you had the copper plated, but what was, what was the plating on? So the Torah tells us, Hashem is very detailed, by the way, he was an amazing uh, instructor of what exactly he wants to have in his palace. We are all in creating the image of God, and that's probably why we get a little mashuga about our furniture and our houses, and I, I want it to be atazoi and not tazoi. You know, we got it, Hashem, you know, we, we have it in us. So the, the, the boards for the altar was made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is a very strong um, kind of wood. And the Jews schlepped it from Egypt because our great-great-great-grandfather Jacob planted them because he had a vision that one day the, my children are going to get out of Egypt. They're going to end up in a desert. God's going to command he wants to have uh, a temple that's going to need a lot of acacia wood. And that's, that's why the Jews intuitionally knew Let's schlep acacia wood. All right, finally, we're going to use it. One of the props that had to be was this altar. And this altar was made with acacia wood boards. But how are you going to build an altar just with these boards? It was a tall altar. It was, uh, I think, 10 cubits, maybe 15 feet tall. Maybe even, maybe even uh, maybe I make no mistake, maybe even taller. And uh, it was a whole serious structure. Now, the way it was built is you had two boards of acacia wood and we filled it with earth to give it its strength. So we had acacia wood on both sides all the way around the whole altar, all the walls of the altar, and then you filled it with earth. Out on the outside of the acacia wood, we plated it with copper. And the, the golden altar, same thing. Acacia wood filled with earth in it, and plated with gold. Now, whenever we had to travel, what did we do? We took apart the boards, let the earth fall on the floor. We assembled the boards. We didn't need to schlep the earth. We'll get earth in the next location, our next destination. We'll have earth, so that's no problem. But like this, it made it easier for travel. Now, in Parsha Yisro, a couple weeks ago, we read the portion of the, of the Mount Sinai when we got to Torah in that parsha. And over there, God calls the altar with the following name. He says, the Mizbeach Adama. What does it mean, Adama? From the word Adam. Adama means earth, ground, earth. So he calls it the earthen altar. Ah, what is this? Give us what kind of information, but does this do we gain by calling it the earthen altar? This verse is a very key, important verse in the laws of purity. One of the things that could never become impure is earth, earth can never become impure. So, if you take a dead body, it gets buried in the earth, earth doesn't become impure. Now, here we're going to have a very interesting rule. And this is the first going to open us up a little bit to some Talmudic discussion. And today, 
we're going to do some Talmudic discussion, and I want to give you a little bit of a, a background to the Talmud, and we're going to find some fascinating things across the entire Talmud. But I want to give you a couple f- uh, facts about the Talmud. First of Rabbi, all, Rabbi, yeah, Rabbi, yes, Sean, yes. Can I ask a quick question before you move on? Yeah. So is there a simple way to understand why a vessel can be impure, whereas a flat sheet can't? Is there, is there something that we're meant to understand for, for a, why vessels are so important? Okay, that's a very good question. And the truth is, the Torah does not give us the reason for it. It just says that something that's a vessel could become impure. So we know from there, vessel is the term that will categorize it to be able to become impure. Why a vessel and and not flat doesn't tell us. But we derive, remember, this is the way we understand law, is we always got to go to the textbook. The textbook says it's a vessel, so we know vessel. Now, and elsewhere we learn, earth is not a vessel. Earth is from the ground. Now, but before I get to the Talmud part of things, whenever something becomes impu- something becomes impure, it's not garbage. Everything that's impure has a method to become pure. And there are several methods depending on what's the impurity. But generally speaking, the Torah says, if you have a gathering of mayim chayim, which means live water, Live water means it's not a stationary water, so it's not a closed-in pond or a closed-in lake. It's got flowing water, meaning it's, it's got life to it. That, if you take the impure vessel and you put it into this kind of body of water, being that we don't all live next to oceans or, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it, the rivers and things like that, so we have something called a mikvah, a mikvah is basically the same idea. Mikvah means a gathering of water. So you take such a vessel and you put it into a mikvah and the vessel could become pure again. A person that becomes impure, let's say by touching a corpse, you go into a mikvah, right? We're soon going to come a little bit later on to about a woman becoming impure when they have their period they're considered to be impure, spiritually impure, and how they become pure also through going through a mikvah. But we'll, we're going to talk about that when we get to that piece of the Talmud. Now, now let's go to the subject of what the Talmud is all about. You always hear the words, the Talmud, the sages say, the sages learned, the sages argued. For the first approximately maybe 1,300 years after we got the Torah on Mount Sinai, since Moses calls the Torah that he got from God and brought it down, he calls that the written Torah because God told him to write it. So he calls that the written Torah. God told me to write it. God told him to write it on parchment, something that has more uh, longevity to it. So it's called the written Torah. So we learned from that, that there's something called the written, and then there's something going to be called the oral. God told Moshe all the rules and how you could interpret the Torah. I want people to study it, embrace it, think about it. It should become part of you by thinking it. So everything else was always understood that it had to be oral. So there was the written Torah, and everything else was only discussions that people spoke and learned. 
Moshe taught the oral Torah too. He taught it to the state, to the elders, to the prophets. They passed it down to generations. But eventually, eventually, after almost 13, around thirteen hundred years, people were forgetting fundamental interpretations to the rules because how, how well are our, our minds? And then there are many laws that have gray areas, and then we have many time, many scenarios that only come up once in, as we say in English, once in a blue moon. For example, pass, one of the most classic examples is Passover that starts on a Saturday night. That's one of the complicated laws. It only happens every number of years. It's, it's very rare. When do I burn my chametz? I can't burn it on Shabbos because you can't make a fire. So you got to do it on Friday in the time of the temple. When did you bring the offering? On the Friday or the Thursday uh, or the Saturday? But you're supposed to bring it on the Saturday. You're supposed to bring an error of Pesach. So many laws that we were just forgetting. And the, one guy said, I forgot what my grandfather said, who heard it from his grandfather, who heard it from the mouth of Moses, who heard it from God. But that was oral Torah. So the oral started getting f forgotten until a man named Rabbi Yehuda, or Rabbi Judah in English, Rabbi Yehuda documented all the information that he heard his whole life, and he had many sages help him, but he documented the discussions of the oral law. And he calls those discussions the Mishnah. The Mishnah is what everybody would study those days. Only the Mishnah, it was the only first time. And he said, I'm going to write it, but not like a Torah scroll. We're going to write it on regular, I don't know what, uh, you know, uh, fish paper or whatever, newspaper, whatever you want to call it, whatever paper you can get a hold of. We're not going to write it on parchment like a Torah scroll. So we'll do it a little different. So we'll have, a, a, you know, a difference. But ultimately, it became available in written. Everybody started writing. So the oral Torah was written just in a different kind of style like written, like the written Torah of the five books of Moses and the books of the prophets. So that's the difference of text from written Torah and oral Torah. So the oral Torah and now is called the Mishnah. Now what I want to show you is a little picture here. If whoever's on the Zoom, you'll be able to see this uh, picture. Here, let me uh, blow this up a bit. Here. This here is the name of the six sections of the orders of the Mishnah. In other words, Rabbi Judah said, I'm not gonna just gonna write and write and write, it'll be so unorganized. He said, let's make this, let's make the teachings of the Torah organized. And he did it by subject. He wrote 60 books, but the 60 books were broken into six tractates, let's call it. The first one is called Zeroim. In Hebrew, Zeroim is from the words Zera, a seed. It deals with all the laws of agriculture. Okay? Am I allowed to breed different seeds, mix them together? The Torah says no. How far do things have to be in a field not to be called mixing the breeds of seeds? Other agricultural laws, what blessings do you make on the foods that grow from certain uh, grains, certain trees, certain bushes, all laws of agriculture are in the first section called Zeroim. And it's going to be important for us to know all these six because today we're going to give you one example from each one of these six. But first, let's learn what these six are. The second section is called Moed, or in Hebrew, they call it Moadim, holidays. Shabbos is a holiday, regular holidays. 
all the days of vacations are called Moadim. There's actually a city in Israel called Moadim. Anyway, so Moed, all the laws of Shabbos, how do you observe Shabbos? How do you keep Shabbos? What are the laws of Shabbos? Am I allowed to cook on Shabbos? How can I have hot, hot, hot shalom? All the laws of Shabbos, all the laws of all the holidays. That means there's going to be a book called Rosh Hashanah. There's a book called Yom Kippur, called Yuma. There's a book called Sukkis. There's a book called Passover. There's a book called Shavuos. There's a book on Purim called the, Meg the Talmud Megillah. That's all going to be in Moed. The third section is called Nashim, all the laws regarding to women, meaning marriage, divorce, all these laws. How does one get married? What are the responsibilities of marriage? How old do you have to be to get married? Who takes who to be their spouse? Right? All the laws relating to marriage, and of course, the laws also protecting the woman of the laws of divorce. All the laws. Who has to give it a divorce? Who has to pay for a divorce? All these responsibilities and the laws of it are all in the tractate of nashim, meaning women. The fourth book is called Nezikin, means damages. If you have a house and I decided to build a tower of condominiums right next to your house, your value of your windows lights went down so your value of your property may have gone down so i may have damaged your property what if that's one example what if i let my uh, my dog out to run around the street it went right into your field of crops and damaged all your crops that's called laws of damages and so on and so forth in the laws of damages obviously there's also many other criminal laws everything to do with damages monetary damages in for section four section five deals with Kadashim means holy things. If I just said my animal is going to be sanctified to the temple, I'm giving it as a gift to the temple, my animal is now holy. I can't say, you know what, I'm hungry and I love that piece of meat of this animal and I'm going to have it for dinner. No, it now it has a law of holiness and many, many other laws of holy things. The final one is the section called Taharis. Pure purity, a ritual of purifications, the laws of mikvah, the laws how to purify many uh, items, vessels, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so these are the six tractates of the Talmud. Now, we're gonna before we get a little more open up to the world of the Mishnah and the Talmud. By the way, just to, in terms of terminology, the Talmud is the explanation to the Mishnah. It's a collection of about 500 years of sages explaining the Mishnah. Because as generations went on, it was started to realize that what Rabbi Judah wrote was really written shorthand. So we have to explain what he was saying. So a Mishnah written of four lines, you could have 10 double-sided pages explaining it. Just to understand, today in the world of studying, which we're all doing here, the Talmud, the size of the Talmud, is approximately 2,700 double-sided pages. That's what we have. There maybe was more in earlier generations, but it was all written. How is 2,700 double-sided pages? There are many people that study a cycle of studying Dafyomi. Every day they do one page. If you never miss a day in seven and a half, I think, seven and a half years, seven plus years, you could go through the entire thing. It's a very rigorous schedule it's a minimum of an hour to two hours every single day 
the weekday, Shabbos, Yom Kippur, <laughs> Passover, got to stay in that uh, regimen. It's a nice, vigorous, and dedicated uh, cycle. Um, in Chabad, we try to study one volume of the whole thing every year. There are, I believe, 34 full tractates of the Talmud, I think, or 36 maybe tractates of the Talmud. You go one book a year. Anyway, there's different ways how you can get through it. You can also get through it by joining in today's class. So these are different ideas of studying of the Mishnah of the Talmud. Now, now let's get to something of, to, of this last week's and this week's parasha. Another point, I mentioned that last week and this week's parasha talks about the instructions that Hashem wants for His palace. He wants to have all the props And last week. This week He wants to have the garments and the uniform should be atazai. So that's in this week's parasha. Next week we're going to interrupt with a different parsha about the golden calf and the sin and all that. Then the week after that, for two weeks, we repeat exactly what we just did last week and this week. But we say, and the Jews did this. We actually built the ark to this measurement and this measurement and this measurement. We built the bread table to this and this measurement. It goes through showing that what we really followed, carried through, and we actually built and made the garments and so on and so forth. By the way, it, it, like even when it speaks about certain garments we needed, we needed certain curtains. It says that the women those days, many, not all, but many of the women were so talented, they were able to weave a piece of material straight off the back of the sheep without, you know, sharing it first. There were certain talents that we had those days. The chief person that was in charge of building construction, his name was Batsalel. He had a helper man, Ahaliyav. And again, all these things are in these parshas. But now here's, let's get to a tractate in the Talmud. There's a tractate, one of the tractates are called Chagiga. Chagiga, you all, most of us, I think everybody, uh, you heard the words called Chag Sameach, right? You say Chag Sameach. Chag means a holiday. Sameach means happy. So you say Chag Sameach, happy holiday, right? Now, so there's a, one of the books in the Talmud is called Chagiga. Chag, but in plural, Chagiga. The holidays, the hol- all about certain holiday stuff. Over there, in the completion of the entire book of Chagiga, there's the following Mishnah. The Mishnah reads like this. After every holiday, remember, Jews would come make their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, come up to the temple. People made their gifts of their offerings, their donations. It was a very spiritual time. People would come with their the wives and the children would come many cases too if they were able to. Also, don't forget, if you had growing fields with fruits and vegetables, uh, mainly your fruits, anything that, a certain amount of tithing, you had to bring it to the temple. Of course, the temple didn't need that much uh, food, so you were allowed to sell your food and bring the money to the temple. So there was a system like that, and there were special designated, um, I don't know, one, I don't know if called bank accounts, but you know, uh, boxes that held the money for three different kinds of causes, whether it was for money to keep up the temple or it was to help uh, help the uh, poor or it was for the Kohanim that actually ran the temple. So there was different kinds of stuff. Now, so it sounds like this. At the end of the holidays, kol ha-kelim all the vessels that were in 
the temple needed to unin tevila. It had to go into a mikvah. Why? The menorah had to go into a mikvah, and and the, all the other vessels, the pots, the spoons. They had so many things in the temple. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jews would come to the temple, especially on Passover and on Shavuos and on Sukkot. There's a commandment in the Torah: Shalish pam in Bashana Yera calls the Special commandment to come up to the temple. Now there were a lot of areas in the temple, especially the more inner chamber you got in the temple, that the people that went in there were the Kohanim, the, the priests. The priests had to bow and do certain services. Now what's interesting is, a lot of these priests weren't so knowledgeable of law. I mean, not everybody knows law so well, right? Not everybody had, you know, the information to get onto a Zoom. So not everybody had this schoolings. A lot of people were into farming. You, took, you helped your parents with your farms. That was mostly how most people survived those days. So now, when you came into the temple, if you were an ignorant person, a Kohen, and you walked in and you saw um, you know, some kind of gold uh, something there, the vessel that held the blood, let's say, you know, and you said, let me touch it. You know, like we all do when we go to museums, right? Especially where there's a string that says, please do not touch. You have to feel it, you know? I, I know what you mean. So, this was very common in the temple. So, how do we know that the person that touched it, that you weren't impure? Maybe you were tame. From hundreds of thousands of people coming into the temple, you cannot assume that everybody knew the law to go to the mikvah before, and they knew if they were impure, they actually got the mikvah. I mean, there's so many laws, who knows? So the rule was, after the holidays were over, there was a special cleaning crew would come in, of Kohanim, and they would take the vessels, the pots, the cups, everything, and they would put it into mikvah. Says the Mishnah, except for two props. What were they? It was the golden altar and the copper altar. Why? Says the Talmud, because they were like earthenware it was like earth why as we explained before what was the build makeup even though you had copper on the outside but the build makeup was earth inside the boards the boards itself are earth the wooden boards the acacia wood and physical earth right inside and it's as earth and we said before that earth does not become impure because the verse says, Mizbeach Adama Tasali, make for me a earthen altar. Those are the words of Rabbi Eliezer, or El Azar. He's the one that said the reason why the altars did not have to be gone, go through a mikvah, the, the altar, is not because it's big, it's because it's earth. The sages come and say something else. They say, that the reason is because they were only plated. In other words, even though it's a metal, but since the metal was not really a vessel and it was used as plated, plated means that it's nullified to the main purpose of this structure. That's the definition of plated. When you plate gold over something or copper, you're only plating. It means plating is insignificant to the actual item. 
You're, you're beautifying it, but it's not the item. What is the item? Copper? No. The item is it's the altar. Happens to be it's plated. Now, there's a question here is, the question is like this. Are the sages arguing against Rabbi Eliezer? Or are they really just explaining him? Eliezer said that it has a law of earth. And the verse says that it's, it's earth. Therefore, it's not pure. Are the sages saying that in addition to the fact that it's called earth, is it also, you should know, it's only plated, and plated means it's insignificant to the, to the wood, and therefore the plated won't become impure. So even if a coin that was impure touched the plated, it's only plated. Plated is insignificant. That's one way how to view this. Another way how to view this is, is that no, the sages are telling Eliezer, really, it's supposed to be impure. The loss should be impure. Really, it's metal. And the fact is that metal could become impure. The only reason why here it's not is because it's insignificant to the actual altar. So that's like a different way how to look at this thing. Now, the fact and the way I just taught it to you is the opinion of the way the Rambam learns in his commentary to the Talmud. He says that what the sages are really saying is, is that you, Rabbi Eliezer, you're saying is that really the altar is supposed to be impure because Kohens that are not so educated may touch it. But since you're saying the reason is because it's earth, and I'm telling you that the reason is not just because of earth, it's because of the, the idea that it's only plated copper or the other altar plated gold, but it's not really that. Yes, Sean? Uh, so Rabbi Eliezer uh, also was the great protagonist in the debate about the oven, about whether that was able to be pure or impure or not. So is there a reason why he's focusing on this issue? So without us getting too distracted, Rabbi Eliezer was an expert in the subject of laws of purity and impurity. So this, he covers many subjects in the laws of purity and impurity, yes. Now, the question is, why does the Rambam view it as if the sages are arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? Why can't, they, just, why can't the Rambam just agree that the sages are explaining Rabbi Eliezer. Why does it have to be that there's an argument here? Just say Rabbi Eliezer said the reason why the ark is, does not need to go into the mikvah is because it's earth, it's, it's called earthenware and the sages are explaining what does it mean earthenware? It's because we don't look at the copper as anything is significant. It's insignificant to the, to the altar. Why does the Rambam have to say that the view is that Rabbi Eliezer is saying that really the altar was impure. It's just that we have a verse that it's like earth, and that's why we're calling it, uh, you know, we're calling it earth, and therefore it's called pure. In other words, really it's supposed to be impure because there's a metal that was used as vessel, but since it's called earth, we're not going to call it impure. To understand this, 
we're going to find here something very fascinating, and that is that whenever we study something, whenever you become a person that wants to argue something, you have to develop a view on something, not just a view on one specific subject. You become a certain style way of thinking. What kind of thinker are you? How do you think? How deep do you think? How do you argue? You have to have like an approach to an argument. I want to give you an example that will, and then we'll open up to the discussions of the Talmud. When you want to have an authentic picture of somebody, there's two approaches in how you could hang a picture in your home of somebody, somebody that you love deeply, that you know well, and you want to hang a picture of this person in your home. One approach is, I bring the person to a photographer, and we take a nice good picture, we get a good, nice printout, and I hang it on my wall. I could see your color or your skin, I could see your eyes, your nose, your lips, your, your, whole, your whole body. That's one way. Another way is that you could argue and say, one second, is this who you are? Is that your teeth? Is that your nose? Let me send you for an x-ray. And I want to have the real you hanging on my wall. I'm going to hang the x-rays of you. Right? Which, which is the best way? Which is the better way to hang a picture of yourself or somebody you love? Do you want to take a picture of their external thing, what I see? But that's not really them. I mean, when you go to the dentist, Right? They take an extra of what's going on there. That's the real tooth. That's, and now I can see what's going on deep inside. So maybe you should hang the x-ray from the dentist. So this could be an argument. <laughs> it may sound a little bit crazy because most of us will rather just be satisfied with the picture of the outside. I'm not that interested in hanging up my x-ray out there. One of the, some of the reasons may be, you may have a logical argument for that, because if I put up a picture of the x-ray and it shows a certain thing inside, I don't know that thing inside is really going to be there tomorrow. Maybe it's gone tomorrow. Maybe a new thing's coming. I don't know. The outside, is maybe less, less change is going on, or for whatever reason. But there, another, my point is that there's a difference of an approach. So let's go through one example. We're not going to finish today for 9 o'clock, so we're going to put the clocks away, but we're going to go until we have to go. But the point is, we're going to see an example of two different views. Today we're going to discover the different views of two of the most well-known sages that argue in almost every single case. I, this, there's almost nowhere where they could agree. This guy sees it like the picture of the outside of the body, and this guy sees it with the x-rays of the inside. A whole different kind of approach. Let's use one example of, first of all, who are these people? Called Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and Hillel are very famous. They're very well known because they argue, their arguments go across the whole book of the Talmud, or the whole set of the whole Talmud. And in addition to that, they're so amazing at their, their views that even after they passed away, there became the academy of Shammai, the school of Shammai, and there became the school of Hillel. And the students 
of these teachers started to think the way their teacher thinks. And we're going to find these examples here. So here, the first tractate, as we said before, is the tractate, is the, is the first of the six sections, the way the Mishnah and Talmud is set up, is called, what's the first one? Let's go back to our shared screen. Uh, here. Zuraim. Yeah? Zuraim, good. Agriculture, yeah? So the first thing is, example is this. In the first tractate of the section of agriculture, we have the laws of brachos, of blessings. That has to do with anything that grows and connected to agriculture. What kind of blessings do I make on foods and stuff like that? In addition to all kinds of foods, once we talk about the subject of blessings, we have a question and a subject regarding a blessing for fire. We all know that every Saturday night when you make the Havdalah service, one of the items that you're supposed to have for Havdalah is a fire. Why a fire? So in short, it says that God created the world in six days. Adam, after the, when he was, he was born, heir of Shabbos, Shabbos was light. The whole Shabbos is light. The Shabbos does, never has darkness. Even the dark that you see is really light. So Shabbos is all light. After Shabbos, it became Fidster and the Eigen, and he couldn't see anymore. He needed light. Hashem told him how to make a fire. Take two rocks, and he makes a fire. Now, so every Saturday night, we thank Hashem for light through making a fire. Now there's an argument between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel of what is the blessing that you make on the fire. We are all used to opening up the prayer book and I follow what it says inside. But it wasn't simple to come to the conclusions. Everything had to go through a good argument and a debate until we realize who's going to win the debate. And that becomes the law of the one that has better proofed his argument. So let's see. Shammai says the blessing should be Shabara, Barachat Hashem Al-Kenam Shabara, Mo'ar Ha'esh. The creator of the light of this fire. Now listen carefully to the words. Mo'ar means light singular. Shammai says, you make a blessing and you say, thanks for creating the light of fire. And you say light in singular. Base Hillel, the Academy of Hillel says, Shammai, you got it all wrong. The blessing should be, the creator of the lights in plural of fire. That's the Mishnah. The Talmud comes and says, what exactly are you guys arguing about? Why do you say Shammai, the singular light, and Hillel says the plural? I mean, what's the argument? So the Talmud explains that the argument is as following. Shammai says that there's only one light here. There's one flame I see, one light. So that's why I say it's singular. Well, Hillel comes and says, what's with you? A fire is made up of many colors. There's red, red in the fire. There's white in the fire. There's yellow in the fire. A fire has many, like Rashi brings down there. There are many colors to a fire. That's why you should say it in plural. Now, what exactly are the argument? It's obvious if you would ask Shammai, are there no colors inside the fire? What do you think Shammai is going to say? No, 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 there's only one color. Of course he's not going to say that. 
So what are they really arguing about? The argument is, how do I approach the subject of the light that I see? Shammai says, listen there, Hillel. I don't get so deep into what I see. When I see something and I see a picture, I want to have a regular picture of a person hanging on my wall. I don't want to get into the x-rays and all the details of the thing. If I would sit down and analyze the, the whole picture, of course, I'm going to start to see the colors of what's going on over there. But I look at things from the surface. When, in other words, when I come into the room and I see a fire, what's my first uh, attitude? I see a fire. That's it. Hillel says, nah, that's not the way to look at a fire. When you see a fire, take the time. Think a little bit. Get deeper. Don't just be such a surface person. Get deeper. What's the fire made of? How many colors are there? What kind of colors are there? Study the details of it. That's the difference in this argument. It's the approach. Do I look at something face value or do I go much deeper and do I dig deeper? So that's one example of the approach of the school of Shammai and Hillel in the laws of agriculture, in the, in the section of books with agriculture, in the section of Zerayim. Another section is the section about women. In the books of women, in one of the tractates of, one of the books in that, section called Nashim, there's a beautiful, very well-known Mishnah. The Mishnah says like this, in Hebrew, Ketzad meraktin lifne hakala. How should I dance in front of a bride? There's a mitzvah to make a groom and a bride happy, especially the bride. You know, the groom, he comes to the wedding, he puts on a suit, he's ready. The bride... It's weeks and weeks of preparation. Got to find the gown, the makeups. There's so much that gets in the hair do. There's so much to deal with. So we got to make the bride happy. Says the Mishnah, how should I make them happy? What should I, what should I do? What should I say? <laughs> Get back to the basics, you know? What should I do? What should I say? So the Mishnah says like this. Base Shammai, the school of Shammai says, what do you mean what should you say? If she's beautiful, say she's beautiful. Kala na <laughs> What do you see? Basic, whatever, whatever beauty you see, compliment her on that. You walk in, you see the bride, and you don't like the way her hair was done. Don't talk about her hair. Talk about her makeup. You don't like that either. Talk about her gown. You don't like that either. Talk about her jewelry. Whatever, find something. Shammai says, talk. Stress the beauty that you see. That's the school of Shammai. Hillel comes and says, <laughs> Shammai, what are you going to do if this Nebach, if this bride is not so beautiful? <laughs> you may not have what to say. So Shammai, so Hillel says, you should always say, a bride is gorgeous. You're stunning. You should always walk into a wedding and say that. So now, Shammai comes to Hillel and he says, Hillel, do you not remember that there's a law in the Torah that says you're not allowed to lie? <laughs> How could you go say to a bride, you're so beautiful, if she's not? 
What if she's blind? What if she's a li limps? She has certain physical impairments. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, you're so gorgeous? I mean, come on, Hillel. How could you do that? So Hillel says back to Shammai, I don't understand something. If somebody goes to the marketplace to buy a vessel and they bought something really bad, what are you going to do to the person? <laughs> I can't believe you spent the money on that. That's such a terrible buy. The item that you bought is a piece of garbage. Is that what you're going to say? Of course not. If somebody goes and spends money in, you know, somewhere and comes back with it, you're going to say, wow, how nice, so nice, right? That's what you're going to do. So in our case, so the girl, Nebach, if unfortunately she has some kind of impairment, what are you going to do? You're going to stress about that? Say, tell her that she's beautiful. Now, that's the Talmud. Now, when you look at this argument for, on face value and you go, what is going on over here? Does Hillel really believe that you're allowed to lie? The Torah does say, like Shammai pointed out, that you're not allowed to lie. And what do you think? Hillel forgot that rule that you're not allowed to lie? We're talking about the greatest Torah stu students and studies people. So what does it mean? Shammai saying, just say that she's, say, say the beauties that you see. And Hillel says, always announce that she's gorgeous and she's beautiful and everything, even if there's an obvious you know, something that may not be called beautiful. And the answer is, it's a different approach. Shammai's approach is, Shammai says, when I come into a situation, you should be looking at what you see. If she's beautiful, or, what, or whatever is beautiful, not, don't say anything nice, but stress the beauty things that you see. Don't go around and say anything different. Hillel comes and says, no, that's not, that's not good enough. Hillel says, when you see this woman, like any woman or like any man, same thing, obviously, but here is the laws about the mitzvah to make a bride happy. It says, when you see this person, this woman, you should be thinking to yourself that what is this? What is the impediment? What what am I getting into? What did the groom get into here? Obviously, the groom knows that this woman is blind or the bloom or deaf or or or, or uh, they say in Yiddish, ahinkedika means that they're limping, she's limping or whatever the condition is. But he obviously dated her, got to know her, and he sees so much beauty in here in this woman that he doesn't even see any of the things that you would call an impediment. He doesn't even see it like that. Hillel sees it so amazing. He says, because, the, because I went into the details. I dug deeper. And I saw the x-rays. And I saw that this woman, psh, there's nobody like her. I will do anything in the world to make sure that she should become my wife. So it, it's not anymore that you have to lie. You didn't have to lie. God forbid, you're not allowed to lie. Of course you're not allowed to lie. The Torah says, Midvar Sheker Tircha. But you're not lying. Because for you, this is the most beautiful woman that exists in this world. So that's why the different approaches. What do you mean? What are they arguing? It's a different approach in how to tackle a law. Shammai says you should tackle the law and you should rule based on what you see. Hillel says what you see is not enough. Go deeper.
And when you come to the conclusion where you see deeper, that's significant. By the way, the rule is always when there's an argument of Shammai and Hillel, the law is like Hillel. The law is always like Hillel. Shammai was considered to be too strict. He was too literal. He saw you and he, he, he made a picture based on what he saw you on the first meeting. It doesn't mean, by the way, that he wasn't sharp. It doesn't mean that Shammai didn't go deep. But he said at the end, after everything is said and done, you got to rule on what you see. You can't rule on the deeper layers. Hillel said, no, you got to go deeper because on what you see on the surface, you may not even have a good vision. So don't judge just what you see. And the law is going to be like Hillel. So that's the second example. Let's move on. In the... Books of Damages. Nezikin. Here we're going to see an interesting take. Generally, generally, this, if you look on all the cases, the hundreds of cases of Shammai and Hillel arguing, Shammai is always the stricter guy and Hillel is always the lenient guy. You're going to see some, some scenarios coming up. But at the end of the day, Shammai and Hillel had law laws to establish. Shammai goes strict, Hillel goes lenient. However, because their philosophy in the way they approached law was so strong, sometimes Shammai rules the lenient and Hillel rules the stricter. Very few cases like that. Out of the hundreds of cases, I think there's a handful where Shammai rules lenient and Hillel rules strict. Because, you know, if you're the strict parent, you're usually going to be the strict, but there's some times where you'll be the lenient and so on. So now, here's a case where you'll see this. Shammai, oh, sorry, the case is like this. For a woman that has her monthly cycle, a woman that has a monthly cycle knows that every month on a certain day, you could pretty much assume that that's the day, as the expression goes in the halacha, that your visitor will arrive. And you're considered to be impure, right? The Torah tells us the blood that comes from the uterus makes you impure. You got to go to the, you wait seven days. You wait a few days till it's completely clean. Then you have to examine yourself for seven days to make sure it is 100% clean. Then you can go to the mikvah. So usually it's 12 or 13 days. A woman will go to the mikvah every month. Now, there are many women that don't have a, the laws obviously change a bit. Now here's the, here's the question. Let's say on a Sunday, oh, such a woman that doesn't have a regular cycle, it's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't come at the same scheduled time. So she, one day, it's a Sunday, and she says to herself, you know what, I think it's, I think it's here. So she goes and examines herself, and no, lo and behold, garnished. She's clean. What does that mean? In the time of today, it means you could continue having relations with your spouse, but in the, in the time of the temple, it made even more differences. If you're pure, you could eat the food that came out of the temple. If you're impure, you can't eat the food, and if you touched any food, all that food becomes impure. So now what happens? On a Sunday, she checks, she's pure. Now on Tuesday... She checks again, and she realizes she's impure. Now, 
what is with all the food that she touched on Monday? On Monday, are you going to say that the stuff I touched yesterday, <laughs> is it pure? Because maybe I just became impure today. Or do you say, no. Sunday was the last time I checked and I'm clean. So anything from after I checked, I'm clean. Anything I touched, let me remember what I touched. And everything I touched from after Sunday's checkup, examination, examining yourself, you know, anything after that's impure. So there's a debate from Shammai and Hillel. Shammai says, all the rule is, kol hanashim dayon shaitan. He says, oh, for all women, the time is your judge. In other words, your ruling goes based on that time. Meaning from the time when I checked myself, let's say on Tuesday, she checks herself, she sees that she's impure, from here and forward, anything I touch will become impure. Hillel says, no. Hillel says, mipkida lipkida. From the moment of checking to the next moment of checking is one, is, is, has to be counted. In other words, he says that from Sunday, when you examined yourself, from after that moment of Sunday's examining, from that point, Anything after that is going to be called impure. So Hillel really is the more stricter. He's saying everything from Monday is impure. Again over here. Why the argument here? So the Talmud goes through the argument. Shammai says we rely on a chazaka. Pretty much most of her days she's pure. So let's count it pure from the moment from Sunday until today. Since most of her days, she's, a, she's pure. It happens to be every couple of months, she gets a period, so then she's impure. But come on, otherwise. So let's go a majority of time. Hillel says, I got to do different. He says that we go on the principle of rule that as long as there was no, um, her body didn't have any change, then you could say the principle. But since, from after Sunday, there could have been that her body already made it, had some kind of change. And that could have caused for some kind of blood to exit. And that would make her impure. Therefore, I'm going to rely on that. But let's go back to the principle of the thinking. Shammai says, let's examine what I see. Right now, what do I see? I see the picture. Right now, she checked. She sees that she's impure. So right now, you're impure. Hillel says, no, dig deeper. Look at the whole picture, you know, pull out the calendar. When did you check last? It was on a Sunday. What time was it? Hillel says, you got to go deeper. Again, it's the same philosophy in how to approach to get to the law. Shammai says, look at the way you, what you see. As there's a famous law, by the way, that it says that a judge could only rule on what they see. If a person comes is brought to court that they murdered somebody, yeah. So the judge, so the judge says, "You murdered somebody." And the guy says, "What do you mean? I regret it from the inside of my kishkes." So that means you repented, yeah. The judge says, "But I can't see in your heart." So I have to rule what I see. I see the video that you did this, or I have witnesses that you did this. I'm going to rule on what I see. What I can't see, I can't rule on. Shammai says that. Shammai says, "What do you see?" is 
going to be the rule. Hillel says, it's not enough what you see. Go deeper, analyze, and then you could put together a whole picture and then you say, okay, you know what? If you're going to argue with me enough that maybe she became impure Sunday night, but I don't know for a fact, but since it's possible, so I'm going to say, okay, from Sunday night already, anything she touched is already called impure. So that's from a tractate in the Zikin. There's a now, we're going to go now to the section of Moed, the holidays. And here's one of the most beautiful, famous pieces in the Talmud with the converts that came to Shammai and Hillel. <laughs> this is legendarily famous. And if it's unfamiliar to you, that's okay. When I was your age, I may have not known it either. So here's the thing. So Talmud in the tractate of Shabbos says the following. Shammai, uh, sorry, um, yeah, Shammai had his school. Very, he was a very famous sage. And a convert, three different converts, meaning three different Gentiles, non-Jews, approached Shammai for conversion. And of course, after Shammai kicked them out and sent them flying, they went to Hillel. But what did they want? One of them came and said, Gaireni, convert me, please, Rabbi. Amanas in the condition that you teach me only the written Torah. I don't want to study the oral Torah. I don't want to know any interpretation of the sages. Don't give me any of that stuff. Just give me the written Torah. Now, Shammai realized right away this guy's mocking the whole thing. What do you mean? Judaism is not about just the written Torah. A person that thinks Judaism is just the written Torah, you missed half the, half the subject you missed. God gave the written Torah with the hidden Torah, with the, with the oral Torah to be taught and derived and extrapolated out of the written Torah. You cannot fulfill any mitzvah just from the Bible itself without having the interpretation of the sages. It's pretty much impossible. I mean, take any example. The Torah says you should write on your mezuzahs of your house and your gate. All right, what mitzvah is that? What am I going to go get a pen and write it on my wall, on my door? How do you do the mitzvah? Well, for that, you got to go to the Talmud. The Talmud's going to tell you what does it mean to write. And it proves you that writing has to be on a piece of parchment, not on a piece of paper. And you can't have a mezuzah printed in China. It doesn't work. I mean, it could be written there but by a Jew, but it can't just be a, you know, a cheap thing printed. It got, it's got to be written. It says, Uchasavtam. And on the doorpost, we're on the doorpost. How do I hang it? With what material do I? And so on and so So many laws about the mezuzah. There's a whole book about mezuzah. Sorry, Rabbi Deutsch. Yeah. Just a quick question. So the whole time we've been talking about the Talmud, we're talking about the, the, the Babali uh, Talmud, not the, not, not the Jerusalem one, right? Pretty but, much, yes. We're now, we're, now we're bringing examples from the Babylonian Talmud, yeah. Okay. So this, convert, this potential convert comes and says, teach me, I want to become a Jew only with the written Torah. Shammai sent the guy flying, head out first. As a matter of fact, the Talmud says Shammai had on his desk, he had a, a contractor's ruler on his desk. <laughs> Must have been a nice thick piece of wood. And he picked it up. Hey, you better get out of here. You're mocking the whole thing. 
That's one guy. Another potential convert came and said, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Give me the 30 second course, <laughs> you know? I want, I want the easy way. Again, Shammai sent him flying. Another Gentile came and said, please, Rabbi, I want to be convert in one condition. I want to be the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. I want to be the high priest. <laughs> I don't want to just become any Jew. I want to, you know, be able to work my way up the ranks. I want to be the Kohen Gadol. And obviously, in Jewish law, no matter how great of a scholar or devoted Jew you are, if you ain't born with a father who was a Kohen, whose father was also a Kohen, all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother, you can never become a Kohen. So obviously, he was mocking the whole thing too. So Shammai picked up his rule and sent them flying again. All these three guys, whenever these stories happen, I don't think it happened at the same day, but they all, the Talmud tells us these three stories. Each one of them, when they left Shammai, they said, I'm going to the more easier rabbi. Today is a different story. Today, people think conversions is some kind of, you know, uh, as they say, like they think it's a comedian uh, doing it, doing a conversion. So, oh, you rabbi, you don't want to convert me? I'm not uh, serious enough, so okay. I'll go find some other wing, wing that calls themselves, you know, representing the Torah and I'll go do it there. So people think it's a joke at times. But we're talking now before this crisis that we live in today, that people look for anybody that will that has a printer with a printing certificates. We're talking about in the days before we had this, when it was, it was, everybody was genuine about it. So when these peoples were kicked out of Shammai's office, they didn't just go to, you know, wherever to go print it out. They took it serious. They wanted to have a real conversion. They just wanted to stipulate a condition. So they went to Hillel. Hillel was more gentle, much more of a patient man. Hillel said to the first guy, you want to learn only to know the written Torah? He said, all right, come sit down. Let's start, let's start learning. We're not done today. Come back tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. And the next guy that said, I want to learn everything on one foot, he said, all right, when you're done with that one foot, now go to the other foot. <laughs> and then come back tomorrow a little more on that foot. And he got the guy enticed into learning and learning and learning. And he got him so rolled in, the guy couldn't get enough. And the third guy, I wanted to be the high priest. He didn't kick him out. He said, you want to be the high priest? Let me teach you some Torah first. Until eventually they learned the section that in order to be a Kohen, you have to be a descendant from a Kohen. So eventually, but the guy was so inspired to the Judaism, eventually he said, you know what? I want to do it anyways, even though I can't become a Kohen, let alone the high priest. So what happened here? Why does Shammai go like this and Hillel like this? I mean, what are, what are these... Every rabbi has to have patience. Every Jew has to have patience, right? As we all know, the, uh, the, the new prayer in America about patience, right? They say, God, please give me patience, the blessing for patience. And, but one thing, please give it to me now. You know, that, that's, the, you know, that's the way they think there, you know? So in this case, the guy says, I won Shammai. It, it came across that he didn't have patience. But what, what, what's going on over here? Why is this so fundamental, a different approach? And if, by the way, Hillel also knew that if somebody comes for a conversion and makes it, mocks it, or doesn't show enough sincerity, you're supposed to push them away. That's part of the laws of 
welcoming somebody to convert. You're supposed to try to see their sincerity. So if you suspect that somebody is making a joke out of it, you're supposed to try to push them away. Some, some sources say, put, do it three times. And if they keep on coming back, they want to convert, embrace it. So you see that they're sincere, right? But here, what happened here is different. And the answer is the same principles that we learned in the other cases. Shammai says, my approach is, I listen to what a guy says. A guy walks in my door and says, teach me the whole thing on one foot. Teach it to me only if I'm going to be a high priest. Teach it to me only if you're going to teach me the written, but I don't want to hear the oral Torah. Shammai says, I take things on face value. I'm going to trust you for what you said. You said that you, don't, you, you only want half of it or whatever. You're making conditions. Well, in that case, you're not fit for this. Hill says, no, no, no. I don't look at things just face value. Let me understand what you're actually saying. You said to me that you want to learn the whole Torah one foot, but I really know what you mean. What you mean is, is that you would like, you know, to get things a little bit faster. You would like, you know, you're, you're, you're anxious about it. The guy that wants to become a high priest, he doesn't know better. He read in the papers that the high priest is the most respectable position in Judaism. They get the entry, enter into the Holy of Holies. You read all these beautiful things. I don't blame you that you wanted that, but you don't know enough of the rules. You don't know enough what Judaism is. The other guy that says, you know, I believe in Judaism only what's written in the Bible. I, anything else, uh, you know, I don't go for it. Like somebody called me yesterday. He said, he said that uh, somebody told him that Moses was born and died on the seventh day of Adar. He says, I don't believe it. I, don't, I never saw that in the Torah. All right. Well, do you know how to read the oral Torah? Do you know how to read how the Talmud? The Talmud will show you a bunch of facts and you'll put together your own dates yourself. The point is, is that a person that says, I only believe in this and not that, obviously they have a lot more room to grow. So Hillel says, I understand when a person talks that I got to dig deeper. Don't take a person on first face value. You call somebody, you want to go out on a date and they say no, you call again. Because when the person said no, what did they mean when they said no? What they meant is they want to see if you're going to call me back again. That's what the no means. <laughs> right? So you have to know what means no. Right? So Hill says you have to know what the guy means. You got to dig a bissel tiffer. There's a deeper picture here. When a person says their beauty, eh, maybe if I take an x-ray, I'll see something else inside. I don't know if I want this, you know? So... Right? Or if you see something on the outside that looks scary, you take an x-ray and you, now you see it's beautiful. So you got to get deeper. Hill looks at it like that. So that's the example, again, where we see the two different ways of thinking that develops the halacha. And again, law goes like Hillel. Another case, another example, is the case in the section of the Talmud called Kachim, which is the stuff that are uh, sanctified in that section of the Talmud, right? What did we say uh, here? How did we call it there? No, not wrong thing, wrong thing. Ba, ba, ba. Did we do this? I don't even know. Lost it. Okay, forget it. Well, you know what I mean. Uh, kajim, kajim. Oh, kajim. Oh, here, here, I got it. Here. Kajim, holy things. Okay, rituals in the, of the temple, yeah? So now, an example of kajim, it's brought down another argument of Shammai and Hillel, the following. You all know 
in the laws of milk and meat. Every Jew more or less knows this, even when they want to fake like they don't know the rule. They heard it once before, we don't eat milk and meat together. Now, in the early days, going back 2,000 years, there was a major problem. Many Jews said that, they, and they made a mistake. Many Jews were eating um, chicken you're allowed to eat with milk, theoretically, because the, the Torah says only meat. Chicken is not meat. The problem was that many Jews were saying to themselves, if I could eat chicken with me, with milk, so by extension, maybe I could have white meat. So they started making this mistake and it started becoming a popular mistake. And to the point, you know what happens when you do a mistake a lot of times? You start realizing that it's not a mistake and you think this is the normal thing, right? That's the way life goes, yeah? So chicken became a law. No more are you allowed to eat chicken together with milk. It's forbidden. If you never knew this rule, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's the rule. Chicken cannot be eaten with milk. It goes into the category like meat. Whatever laws there are with meat, that's where the chicken goes. Milk stays separate. Now, so the Talmud says, am I allowed to have on my same table chicken and milk? On the same table. I'm not going to eat them, of course, God forbid. But am I allowed to have it on my table? Right? Your middle of your wife is in the middle of eating a good breakfast with cereal, and you, uh, you know, you're probably cleaning up the kitchen, and you take the chicken, and you put it on the table. Is this an issue or not? So Shammai says, no problem. Says, I don't see a problem. You're not gonna eat it. Of course not. Hey, you're a Jew. So what's the problem? doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that you can't have on the same table chicken and meat. So if you have chicken and meat on your table, so you have it, no problem. That's Shammai. Hillel says, no. Don't bring it up onto the table. And of course, don't eat it. What happened? Why are we arguing about this? Shammai says you could have the chicken and the milk on the same table. Hillel says you can't. What's going on over here? And the answer is the same approach. Shammai says, I see a Jew, I see the chicken, I see the milk. Why would I suspect this guy that he's going to make a mistake and eat the chicken with the milk? Who would make such a mistake? Come on. The guy knows the rules. You can't accuse him that he's going to make the mistake. He can't have it on the table. I see things the way they are. A guy puts it there, but I know that he knows how to, you know, I know he knows the rules. Hillel says, no. Hillel says, I'm going a little deeper here. Clearly, if this guy is taking chicken and he's taking his milk and he's putting it on the table at the same time, he's clearly a food addict. He clearly needs to see everything he has at the same time. I'm middle eating my cereal, but I have to see my dinner at the same time. He's clearly got some issues with food. He's a food glutton. He's obsessed with food. Today's world, give yourself an example. Today's world, we're not obsessed really about food, but water. I mean, use that as an example of obsession. 
Nobody goes without a water bottle in their hand. People that wear a $5,000 suit, they, wear a, they hold a shmata bottle of water in their hand the whole day, right? Because maybe I'm going to need to take a drink. Well, it's an obsession. We can't live two hours without a, a drink. I mean, what is it? So Hillel says, if you're the kind of person that's putting on your same table a piece of chicken and, a piece of, and some milk or cheese, whatever, you know, a, a dairy and a meat, a dairy with a chicken, he says, I got to be worried. Because again, it sounds like Hillel's going stricter. He is stricter in this case. But still, that's his philosoph philosophical approach to law. Go deeper. Don't just look on the surface. If this is a person that you have to worry, then you got to worry. I can't just take things on the, surf on the surface. <clears throat> Let's bring another example from the book of purification and purity. That's where it's located. So one of the tractates is called the Book of Calum, and over there it says like this. In the olden days, they used to have uh, books that, you know, books weren't the way they made today, you know, uh, fancy covers, whatever. So people would make a cloth that you could wrap around the book to protect it. It could be from worms. It could be from uh, moist or other stuff. So people... Today, most books you buy have a binding, but they didn't have that there, right? So you made yourself, you know, a cover around it. So the Talmud, again, it's a fascinating how the Talmud goes into so many details, thousands, it's just incredible. And so it goes into this subject, and it says like this. Whether the cloth cover you had for the book had images, pictures on, the, on it or not, because it's covering a book, and now this flat piece of cloth has a use. It's like a vessel. Remember, we learned in the beginning of the class, a flat piece of metal, but also a flat piece of cloth. If it's a vessel, it's now susceptible to become impure. But if it's not a vessel for anything, it can't become impure. So this piece of cloth, is it serving a purpose or something, or it's just a flat piece of cloth. So he says, Shammai says, strict. He says, listen, whether this has a designs and flowers on it or not, it's impure. it could be impure. Hillel says, no, relax. He says, if it has pictures, prints of design, you know, you sewed in nice things around on, on this piece of cloth, and then you wrapped it on the book, then I know that this cloth is like a vessel. It serves a purpose. But if there's no pictures on it, sorry, sorry, different. Hillel says like this, if it has pictures on the cloth, he says, then you can't say that it's meant for the book. It's maybe just a regular nice piece of cloth you have in the house. It's not specific for a book. So it's not specific I like a vessel to hold something in it. But if it does not have prints on it, it's not a fancy design piece of cloth. He says in that case, obviously it's used as a vessel to hold the book. So now it's a vessel, therefore it becomes pure. Again, what's the difference here? What's going on over here? So the explanation is, Shammai says... Or let's talk about the actual cover. The cover itself, is it a protection cover? Or is it 
just for, for a beauty thing. If it's a protection, then it's like a vessel. If it's just a cover, then it, then it may be just be nothing. It's not a protection. So in other words, Shammai says, I don't care. I'm not getting into those details, whether this cover has prints on it or not. It doesn't matter. He says, at the end of the day, it's right now, you have it as a cover, it's called a vessel. So it's impure. Hillel says, no, you got to dig deeper. That's what Hillel always does. He looks deeper. He says, let's analyze this piece of cloth. Is it a vessel? Is it covering the book? Or is it just a regular piece of shmata? And that's why Hillel says, if it's got pictures on it, that it could be a regular nice piece of cloth you have around. So it's pure. If it has none, then obviously you had it to protect the book. Protect the book means it's like a vessel, so it'll be impure. So here you see, by the way, in all these cases, by the way, there's just one more. He has a, the Rebbe has a footnote here of another case. I'll just throw this out on the table. And he says, in the laws of impurity, so there's a law that if there's a dead body in a room, so a dead body is impure. Now the impurity of a dead body, if you door, if the doors are open, then the impurity goes out the door into the next room. So anything that's in the next room becomes impure. If a person is sitting there, that person becomes impure because you're all covered by one roof in the same apartment or house. But if the corpse is there and you close the doors, you close the windows, so then the impurity stays in that confined space. Now, what happens if the doors close but not fully? Does the impurity escape through the opening of the door? So the Talmud says it depends how much it's opened. If it's open, one tefach, which is like the size of, let's say, an adult fist with your finger up a little bit. If it's open that much, let's call it six inches, let's call it. I don't know what a centimeter. Let's call it six inches that it's open. That's a big enough opening to be called an opening. And now the impurity escapes from this room and goes into that room. Now, so that's the simple rule. Now, like everything, what if? What if there's an opening, but there's a person blocking the opening? Is my body considered to be a good enough to block the opening? Let's say if for some reason I have a crack in the wall or for some reason I don't want the period to go to the other side, to the next room, right? And my door is broken, it's not closing all the way, so I'll stand in the way. So the opening is sealed by the body of the human being. Does the human being count as sealing up the opening or not? Hillel says, it doesn't. You know why? He says, because in your body, there's a lot of empty cavities there. He says, if you count all the empty spaces, there's more than six inches of empty space. <laughs> I guess maybe some of our scientists here could maybe enlighten us at some point. But there are some places where you have a little ear in your body, right? Some people let some ear out, you know, at certain times, right? Which for men, they know that you're not allowed to let ear out when you wear your tefillin, there's a whole set of things. But the point is, there are some ear bubbles, let's call it. There are places that are empty cavities. Remember, Hillel's the guy that looks at a picture from the x-rays. So he says, I'm going deep into the body. And I see that there are these empty spaces. So therefore, 
your body is still going to be an opening because there's empty cavities so it can go through. Shammai says, stop being crazy with these with these x-rays. He says, I see the picture and I see a body here. I don't see those empty cavities. Therefore, it is called a good sealed closing and the impurity doesn't go through. But again, so that's another example. But here's, everything has to have a lesson. Nothing that you learn Torah, are you, could you walk away and say, ah, that was a geschmacker piece of, I learned something beautiful, I never knew this. And you know, I, you became more knowledgeable. Knowledge alone, without bringing it into practice, has no meaning. Who needs that extra knowledge if you can't use it to something in your life? So, what's the lesson that we can take from all of this? Again, Shammai, the stricter man, looks at things the way you see it. Hillel says, no, you got to dig deeper. Who's the law like? Hillel. What does that teach us? Let's use the example we brought from Tractate Shabbos. We have the bride. Shammai says, how do you dance in front of a bride? Tell her the way it is. Tell her the things that you see that are nice. She has one nice quality, Mention that. She has five. Mention that. That's Shammai. But Hillel says, and the law is like Hillel. The law, Hillel says, no, no, no. Praise her like crazy. Meaning, as he says, dig deeper. Look deeper. Don't just look at a person, what you see on the surface. There's so much good there deep inside. If you look really well, you will see like that groom that took this woman who could have been blind and could have been a hinkadika, a, a limping one. But what did he buy? He doesn't feel that I got a defected woman. I know somebody in the community, I think maybe era of COVID, let's say two years ago, young girl. She married a guy who's completely deaf. You know what? She sees in this guy all these unbelievable qualities that the deaf doesn't, she doesn't see it that he's deaf. You, she, she, she won't say, oh, I married a person with a major deficiency. No, she doesn't see that. And by the way, it's like that whenever you fall in love with somebody, whenever you care about somebody, you don't see the deficiencies. Not because you're ignoring them. It's because you dug deep enough and it's like Hillel says, when you go to the marketplace and you bought an item, to you, this is the most precious thing. You think Hashem would have taken the Jewish people as a bride if he didn't see all the beauty that we have inside us? Of course he sees that we play deaf sometimes or blind sometimes or other stuff like that. But the law is like Hillel. Because that is the approach for nowadays in exile. When we see another person, we must look and look deeper and deeper. And if you see somebody, and even if you heard about somebody, hopefully you didn't hear, but you see something negative, it sounds negative, what's our job? To take it at face value? No, the job is to go deeper and deeper and deeper until you see what Hillel sees. So this is the lesson of all of this of all these cases from across the entire Talmud, we just brought examples from each book of the Talmud, 
each section of the six sections. That is the way we're supposed to live and approach. The, according to the Arizal in Kabbalah, he says that when Mashiach comes, the laws are going to change to be like Shammai. You know why? Because when Mashiach comes, there's not going to be any evil on the world. So you, to, to begin with, won't be any evil. There won't be any sickness. Nobody's going to be sick. We're going to live forever. Nobody's going to be nauseating to you. There won't be any bad in the world. So therefore, it's no problem for the law to be like Shammai. But as long as Mashiach didn't come yet, and what do you see? <laughs> you don't have those eyes that you're going to have when Mashiach comes. So you see all these, you know, the blind and the, and the limping and all the other stuff in a person. So today the law is like Hillel. Because the job is, is to see things deeper and not take things on, for, on face value. And that's why when we say, it says in Pirkei Avot, that when you fight and you have an argument with somebody, it says, if you fight like Shammai and Hillel, it will end up good. But if you fight like Korach and his cronies, that's bad news. So in other words, what's, what's the point? When you argue with somebody, are you arguing out of hate or are you arguing because you want to genuinely figure out what's better? So when Shammai and Hillel argue, of course they argue. They have hundreds of arguments. Those are called machloket l'shem shamayim. They argued for the sake of heaven. And sometimes their arguments were very fierce, but not vicious. That's the difference. So when it comes to arguments in Judaism, are you allowed to argue? It all depends. Why are you arguing? Am I arguing because I'm trying to get to the truth? Or am I arguing because I want to be right and I want to prove you that you're wrong and I'm going to bury you? That's not a way to argue. So this is what we see here today. Back to our subject here. That's why the Rambam learns that when it came to the altar... He says, why did Rabbi Eliezer see that the reason why the altar would be impure and then it's going to be, and, but the verse says that the altar is like earth, therefore it's going to be pure. He says, because Rabbi Eliezer, as the Talmud says in the Jerusalem Talmud, they say that Rabbi Eliezer was a Shamuti. He was a Shamayite. Rabbi Eliezer was a Shamayite, meaning he thought the way Shamayite thinks means he saw things and ruled of what he saw. I see a gold-plated ark. I see a copper-plated ark. Ah, that's what you see? All right, then it's probably going to be impure. The only reason why the altar is not impure, and that's why I don't have to take the altar and put it into water and put it into a mikveh, is because the verse in the Torah says that we call it the earthen altar. And another verse says, Mizbachos, both altars in one word, so both altars are called the earthen altars. So, and the earthen is pure. So in other words, because Rebbe Eliezer was a Shamayite, he, that's the way he viewed things and came to law. So he assumed it to be right away impure, but normally would be impure if it wasn't for a verse that rules a different reason calls it earth. So that's it's all about how you study and how you approach and how the philosophical way of goes of thinking. So let us now 
deserve another l'chaim. Kol to all of you that uh, stayed on to go through this whole thing. Just to put it into, by the way, into a timeline, I think you're going to appreciate this. First, let's say l'chaim, then I'm going to tell you where I got this whole Torah thought. The first l'chaim. L'chaim, to continue learning, embracing, and practicing. L'chaim. I just want to tell you this. Every year on the yard sites of the Rebbe's parents for his mother from 1966 and onwards and for his father from 1944 and onwards when he died, every year on their yard sites the Rebbe would conclude one tractate of the Talmud in public and he would give a whole essay on it because there's a concept that in merit of your parents to learn a piece of Talmud there. This talk that we just did was on the yard site of the Rebbe's father in 1971 the Rebbe said this. Now, I just want you to know that I listened over to the uh, uh, audio recording of it because obviously it was from before I was born. Maybe it's not so obvious, but it's obvious. So, <laughs> in 1971, then the Rebbe said it in the summer. But just, I want you to understand this. He said this talk over three hours, okay? He, in three separate talks, you know, like a talk for, let's say, 45 minutes, a break for L'chaim singing, another talk, 45 minutes, another one. And then he continued it later on the Shabbos, which we don't have a recording. But the, that for bringing now that for bringing starts at nine thirty p.m. The weekday for bringing us and the Rebbe started at nine thirty p.m. And they once asked him why. He said, "Well, during the day we work, so didn't have time till nine thirty at night, you know. And it would go till two thirty in the morning. So we here learned from eight till whatever, quarter to ten. Nishta zegufarlech, you know. When he said it, people were sitting there in seven seventy at one o'clock in the morning. All right, lachayim. It's always a pleasure to learn everybody together. I hope that everybody was understood as much as possible. And if you wrote down some things to review it, and I uh, have it on the Facebook, you ever want to uh, re, you know, go.